Well, if, if you're visiting with us, um, I'm glad that you are here. If you're a regular, we're glad you're still here too. Uh, <clears throat> we've been in this series the past few weeks called Speaking Oki, and uh, it's, it's a series that I've told you is, is near and dear to my heart. I'm born and raised in, in Oklahoma. And as we've done kind of throughout the course of this series so far, uh, I've tried to give you little nuggets of what it's like growing up in Oklahoma because I don't really feel like watching a TV show or a movie where they talk about Oklahoma really depicts it that well. I mean, has anybody seen the movie Twister? That's not Oklahoma. Like, yeah, we have tornadoes, but that's, that's a little over the top with, with their Oklahoma-ness in that movie. And I thought about this because one of the things you typically see in movies or in TV shows, if anybody from Oklahoma is depicted, is this really over-the-top, oaky accent that doesn't actually exist. Like, we don't have an oaky accent. Now, different parts of the country have accents. You know this, right? Like, you can tell if somebody's from Boston or New England. Boston, yeah. You can tell if somebody's kind of from that New York to Philadelphia corridor. You can tell if somebody's from Georgia you know, or Alabama or Mississippi. It's hilarious. Uh, Jennifer's got an aunt and uncle who have lived in Mississippi for how long? She doesn't know. Um, a long time. She's from Oklahoma. Like, she's from where we're from. Uh, her uncle, uh, Uncle Buzz, is from Illinois. So he's kind of got that upper Midwest, you know. You can, you can hear a, a distinct accent from the upper Midwest. Yet it sounds like Sandy is born and raised in Mississippi. She's, she lays it on thick. But Buzz still has the upper Midwest accent that he is refusing to let go of. It's great. You can tell if somebody's from, you know, there's just different parts. Oklahoma, again, it kind of depends which part of the state you're from. More than not, if you hear somebody that, that kind of sounds like an Okie, they kind of have that slow Texas drawl like this. That's about it. Like, it's not over the top. It's just kind of this, we don't get in a hurry. It's not supper time yet. No reason to rush. You know, we, we just get in... We say what we're going to say. Well, what we typically do in Oklahoma isn't that we have a big accent. It's that we just change the way the word is spelled in the way we pronounce it. And in particular, you kind of see, uh, go, go back there real quick. Jim just stole my joke from me. We don't like the letter G on the end of action words. Like, that's one thing we don't do, okay? We're not so pretentious that we have to completely enunciate what we're doing, so, like, for the, that's really where you hear Oki and me, is I don't, I don't do that either. I, I would just say, we're speaking Oki. We're not speaking, okay? We're not that uppity. <laughs> so, you come to Oklahoma and you ask a guy, hey, what's your hobbies? He might say this, I like to go hunting and fishing. That's what we do. We like to go hunting and fishing. Another thing that you're going to hear uh, Oki say is any word that ends kind of with an O sound we don't like that O on the end of it. So you might hear words like this in Oklahoma. Uh, you might see that first one in, in a pillow. That's something you lay your head on and go to bed at night. In a window, that's what you roll down in your car when you pull up to the McDonald's for lunch. Okay? And yellow, that's a good color, right? Okay, my dad, my, my mother-in-law like to talk about vacation in Colorado. That's where they like to go. Or Amarillo, you pass that on the way to Colorado. I can go on and on, but I'll get in trouble if I do. <laughs> My grandpa uh, grew up in southwest Missouri, just across the state line, uh, outside of a little town called Pineville. That's a different kind of folk from southwest Missouri. It's in the foothills of the Ozarks, as Randy and Diane know. Um, they're a different breed of redneck in that part of the country. 
But my grandpa, and I see this too in my, my father-in-law, they take words in the English language that already exist, but they change the definition of them and use them in different contexts. Like here's an example. They'll use these words. But far doesn't refer to distance, and holler has nothing to do with how loud you can yell. In fact, I heard my grandpa on a couple of occasions say this sentence, uh, there's a far down in the holler. <laughs> far is something that's hot with flames. We have fars all around us right now. Some are near, some are far, right? <laughs> and a holler, it's like this low area between two hills. I heard my uncle and my, my grandpa have a conversation one time. Two men I've known my whole life, I had no clue what they were talking about. And they were using words that I should know, right? But they might have well been speaking a foreign language. Here's another good word you're going to hear uh, my, my, my grandpa would have said or my father-in-law would say. The word arn. It's what you do to your clothes when they're wrinkled. You arn them. Okay? Here's one a lot of you might recognize. When your clothes are dirty, you have to wash them. And you might go on vacation to Washington. Okay, I mean, that's, that's, that's what we do. So sometimes you wash your clothes, and then you forget to take them out of the dryer, and then you've got to iron them, right? That's what we do. I tell you all that to say that my grandpa, who's been in heaven since 2006, I'm hoping one of, you, uh, one of these days you guys get to meet him, and I want you to be prepared to know the language he's going to use when you get to heaven and talk to him. So that's kind of how he's, he's going to roll. My grandpa, I talked about him a lot. He had a profound impact in my life. Uh, again, born on a, on a farm, the, the youngest of 13 children in uh, the 1920s. And my grandpa dropped out of school after his sixth grade year because World War II broke out and his older brothers went to fight and he was needed at home on the farm. And he never went back to school after that. But a man with a sixth grade education gained more wisdom in his life than I can only hope to. And, and I heard my grandpa say so many different sayings over the years, some of which I can't repeat, but some made sense to him. There was a couple of his, his famous phrases that I even asked him to explain to me, and after he explained them, I was like, yeah, that still doesn't make any sense. Like, I'm not really sure where we're coming from with this. But he had one phrase in particular that he held on to, that he used all the time, that has had a massive impact on my life. He would have this phrase where he'd say, it's good enough for who it's for. One of his, his phrases. Now you hear this and you might think this is a jab. Like, well, well so-and-so lost their job and they have to just go get a part-time job at the, at the grocery store and you know, they're living on half their paycheck now. Well, it's good enough for who it's for. No, it didn't mean that. It wasn't a jab at anybody. He said this about himself. See, he's a guy who was a master craftsman, master carpenter. If it could be built, he could build it. He was a mechanic. He could, he, he could fix vehicles. In fact, the only thing he wouldn't fix was computers. He had no interest in computers whatsoever. But anything that could be fixed, he would fix it. And he was a perfectionist. I've said this many times. If you, those of you who know Jack McCormick, he reminded me so much of my grandpa. Similar personality, similar corny humor. That was my grandpa. And... I saw him so many times asked to come fix something at somebody's house, and he would lose track of time because he was so wrapped up in it that my grandma would have to come get him at about 9 o'clock at night. And then he would come home, and he would get ready for bed, and then he would think, I didn't do that right. 
and it would keep him up all night long, and first thing the next morning, he was back there making sure it was done correctly. He was a perfectionist. He went over and above any time anybody asked him to do anything. But if you did something for him, he didn't care about the quality of it. All he cared about was that you honored him by blessing him by doing it. It's good enough for who it was for. My grandma would bring food to the table, and, and yeah, there were times my grandma would, or my grandpa would apologize for her, like, well, there's not enough salt in this, sorry. He'd do that at times. But I can remember several times that my grandma would put the food on the table and say, well, sorry, I overcooked the chicken, and my grandpa's response was, well, it's good enough for who it's for. He understood who he was in the grand scheme of things. He had this idea of kind of self-deprecating humor, where he knew that I'm just a man from a farm with a sixth grade education who, in the grand scheme of things, I'm no better than anybody else. Today, our our phrase is is not just an oaky phrase. It's a phrase that kind of stretches coast to coast. I'm sure you've heard it. You've probably said it. But the phrase for today is, you're too big for your britches. (laughs) Phrase that kind of, again, goes well beyond the South or the Midwest or any one part of the country. But the idea of this phrase, too big for your britches, actually comes from the idea of an overinflated ego, kind of an overvalued sense of importance or conceit in one's life. And where this phrase really comes from, another version is too big for your boots, where it comes from is your ego has stretched so big you can no longer fit in your pants. You can no longer fit in those shoes. Ever since she got a new job and that fancy new paycheck and in that new car, she's just come a little too big for her britches. I heard my mom say this a lot. Somebody who's suddenly too good for what they are used to. Now, many of you get mad that I talk about Hallmark movies all the time because they're literally all the same, but this is the story of literally every Hallmark movie, right? The girl moves back home for Christmas, and she's got the big fancy job in Chicago now, and she's grown beyond the little mountain town. She's too big for her britches. And what's the whole point of the story? She realizes that and she changes it, right? There, I just ruined every Hallmark movie for you. (laughs) I got to get some jabs in on these. It's, It's getting close. But think about this, because at the root of this attitude, the root of this statement is pride. That's what the root of too big for your britches is. And the reason I bring this up today is because Pride is so much more than just an attitude that we need to look at and make sure that we're keeping in check. Pride, I would dare say, is the most destructive sin we see in Scripture. I mean, think about this. All the sins that that you might have in your life, all the sins that, that, that you're tempted with, at the root of those is pride. I mean, it was pride that led to the downfall of Satan. Satan was an angel named Lucifer who was in heaven with God. And his pride got him cast out of heaven. He considered himself as great as God. He got cast out of heaven. And we think about that because it's been pride ever since then that Satan's trying to drag all of us down with him, fighting against God, allowing pride to enter our lives and destroy and wreck what we have and who we are. That's why the brother of Jesus in James chapter 4 wrote these words. He said, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think that scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? 
That's why the scripture says God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Come near to God, and he'll come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Every time I read this passage, I I pause, and I just have to stop and think about this. And and I'm always drawn right back to verse 6 when he says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. And that word opposes really jumps out there to me. Because it doesn't say God tolerates my pride, or that God accepts it but doesn't like it, or that God, you know, just kind of lets it, no, it says God opposes it. God puts himself in direct opposition to the proud. It's football season now, if you, you know how football games work, guys might be friends on the two different teams, but when the whistle blows and the game starts, they are in opposition. They're not friends for that 60 minutes of that game. The whistle blows, and they're trying to tackle each other or beat one another. That's what God does with pride. He's on one side, pride is on the other. They, they don't intermingle, right? And I think about that because pride shields us from things. Pride hides things from us. And I think that's why he says in here, not just that God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. He'll lift up the humble is what this passage says. And I think in humility, there's a certain honesty about it. Just like my grandpa is saying, it's good enough for who it's for. There's an honesty in that saying. There's a humility that comes with it. And so I kind of look at it this way. Humility and honesty, you put those together and it equals honor. Because through humility, we're able to be honest with ourselves about ourselves and allow others to be honest with us as well, too. That's important. John Ortberg's a pastor and, and, and a, an author. One of his books, he wrote this. He says, in theory, we can view any person on the planet from head to toe and front to back with but one exception. There's only one human being whose body I can never see in its entirety, me. And that's not just true of my body. It's true of the formation of my own spirit. I sometimes think the biggest uh, spot in the world is my blind spot. We all have a blind spot in our lives. Okay, you get this, right? You get what he's saying. There's a reason I have to look in the mirror to fix my hair or, or, or get stuff off my face because I can't see my face. I can see everybody else's face and I can see if your hair is out of place or if you've got a smudge on your, your, your face or something in your teeth. But I can't see that on myself. So either I have to look in a mirror or have somebody do it for me. And, and the same is for our souls. Same is true for our souls. And that's what he's getting at here, is that until we can step back and and look in that mirror or have somebody else look at us for us, we don't see the blind spots that we have. And the danger that we get with this is those blind spots uh, can allow pride to come in, and pride can allow those blind spots to grow even bigger and darker. You all know the story of the Titanic. This was a ship that was built back in the early 20th century. It was said to be unsinkable. In fact, the old famous quote is that one of the engineers said, not even God himself can sink the Titanic. Well, when it took off on its maiden voyage, this is a picture as it's leaving the port on its maiden voyage, 
They had 16 lifeboats on board. Those 16 lifeboats could hold 1,178 people, but there were over 2,200 people on the Titanic. And that, that's a mind-boggling number that just over half the number of, of passengers had a spot on a lifeboat, but it's even more staggering when you think the Titanic could have held almost 3,600 people. So about a third to a quarter of the people would have had a lifeboat spot. But here's the bigger kicker. They had enough space on the ship and enough brackets on the ship to hold 64 lifeboats. But they only took 16 because they wanted more deck space and more opulence for their passengers. Their engineering thought was, if by chance this ship is going to sink, the watertight compartments are going to hold it on top of the water long enough for us to make several trips with those lifeboats and we'll be just fine. Arrogance. Blindness. Pride. The ship hit an iceberg and it ripped a hole through all the compartments and the ship went down in a matter of a couple of hours before help could arrive. Folks, the the blind spots that allow pride in blind us to our other blind spots. They grow our blind spots and they only make it worse. We become convinced that we can take care of our own issues, that we can fight our own battles, that we can take care of our sin on our own. Or worse yet, our blind spots convince us that we don't have a sin problem. It's not that big of a deal. Pride washes over all of that. Pride causes all of that. This idea that I deserve what I'm going for, that I should get it, this idea that I'm, I'm capable of being a lone ranger. Folks, history is filled with leaders political, military, even church leaders who have allowed pride to take them all the way down. In some cases, they ride that that pride train all the way into the ground, refusing to let go of who they were. But here's the thing. I don't want to just harp on the danger of pride today. I want to focus instead on where it can lead us and what we can do about it. And I think about this because if you're like me, i got to be honest, this is an issue that I can struggle with, pride and ego. This is something that can creep into me very well, very easily, something I need a reminder of all the time, like, hey, Kurt, step back, you're not that great. And, and, and I think about this, okay, how can I keep myself in check? And the answer, of course, is simple, well, embrace humility. Well, that's sometimes easier said than done. So I, I thought about this this week and, and did a little research. I thought, okay, what's an easy way, a simple way to just grab a hold of something that can ground me and, and just kind of lead me back to humility? And it's simple. It's a simple reminder of this. Jesus died for me. And Jesus died for you. That's the reminder. That's the reminder that we need to keep into our our, our hearts and into our souls. And I I need to say this and hear this over and over. And yes, if you're a Christian, you're like, well, yeah, I believe that. I don't doubt that you do, but maybe you need to remind yourself of it over and over. Jesus died for you. Jesus died for me. And he did nothing wrong to deserve that. I deserved that, but he did it anyway. And not only did he die for me, folks, but you need to understand, he died the most excruciating and humiliating way humanity has ever come up with, through a Roman crucifixion. He was beaten senseless. He was flogged. And folks, flogging, if you don't know, flogging actually killed 40% of the people who received it. 
And then he was stripped naked and he was nailed to a cross, nailed to a wooden beam and placed on a very public road. The Romans held crucifixion for one group of people, for political revolutionary threats. And they did that because they wanted to make a statement. And typically when they crucified somebody, they didn't just hang on the cross until they died. They hung on the cross until their body fell apart. That's what they did. That's the statement that they wanted to make. And Jesus did that for me. And he did that for you. And if I start thinking, man, Kurt, you're doing a great job. You're, you're, you're pretty good. No, I'm not. <laughs> you're not. Jesus is. And Jesus did that for us. And remembering that, saying that over and over, getting that ingrained into every level of my being helps me to stay humble. Even if I'm not very good at staying humble, it helps me get back to that point. And specifically, a couple of ways that, that I work on this myself is through Scripture and through song. I, I, I say this all the time. One of the most key facets to, to walking with Christ is uh, spending time in the Bible daily. And the reason is not just so that I can have a verse that I can pull out whenever I need it. It's because the Spirit will remind me of these verses that I already know. And one of these is, is if my ego starts to get a little bit too big, I hear this in the back of my mind, the words of John the Baptist when he says, he must become greater and I must become less. And that's a reminder that I need all the time. Got a professor from Bible college. He's a, he's a pastor now, but instead of having his name on his Bible... He has John 3.30 imprinted on his Bible as that reminder to himself because he's somebody that needs that reminder. He must become greater, I must become less. Or I get the words that Paul wrote in Philippians 2 that pop into my head that says, in humility should consider others uh, greater than myself, not looking to my own interests but to the interests of others. It's not about me. It's about Jesus through me. It's about Jesus in me, it's about Jesus in you, and it's about Jesus in the world. Another way is, is through, through music. I think we've all got different songs that hit us in different ways. One song that, that stays in my heart is a song that was a popular worship song when I was in high school, so dial it back to 1997, a song that came out around that time, just called The Heart of Worship. And I love that song because the, just the first couple bars of that song it says, when the music fades and all is stripped away and I simply come. And I think about that because I spend about 30 to 40 minutes of my week on a stage with the lights on with the crowd, with you guys, with, with people watching online. And it's not, you know, some big mass gathering, but I mean, it's a group that, that I'm here in, in a presenter's role. But that's 30 to 40 minutes of my week. What am I doing with the rest of it? Because the rest of that time, the lights aren't on me. I'm not on a stage. It's just me and God. And how can I come to God as humbly as I can in those times? Another verse that sticks out to me, and I, I learned this verse actually through a worship song, is Psalm 19, 14. When David, a king, a master who had servants and slaves, wrote these words to God, he said, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable to you. Here's David who knows a, a, a servant can't bring a master anything of value because anything that servant has to begin with came from the master. And yet David, a servant to God, knows I don't have anything that God doesn't already have and didn't give me, but I'm going to bring it to you anyway, so how can I make this acceptable and pleasing to you, God? 
And he knows what I can do is just give you my sincere words and thoughts. That's a humbling thought for us. But folks, here's the key. As as we navigate our, our world today, it's a world that pushes pride. It's a world that pushes you to do whatever you want to do. If it feels good, do it. If it sounds good, do it. Go for it. Especially if it's not going to hurt anybody else, you go do it. And that's the danger we run into. I, I don't know about you, maybe, maybe you're similar to me. I, I, I hear these voices at times. And it's, you know, you, you see like the old cartoons, the little devil, the little angel. Don't do this. No, don't do that. Yes, do this. But every once in a while when, when temptation comes up in front of me, I hear this, I hear Satan whisper to me, go do this. You should do this. It's not going to hurt anybody. Nobody's going to know. That'd be fun. And then after I sin, I hear Satan ask me, why did you do that? <laughs> See, here's the thing with this, folks. Satan not only wants me to sin, but then he wants me to camp out in the shame of that sin. He wants me not only to to fall, but he wants me to stay down. He wants me to wallow in shame and embarrassment so that I don't come back to Jesus, that I don't come back to a church, that I don't come back surrounded by people. And folks, that's a form of pride. It's a form of pride that says, I need to fix this on my own. And, and I think about this because I think, I think we all know somebody who's dealt with this. Maybe you've dealt with this, where, where you know that you messed up, and, and you're like, you know what? Maybe Jesus will forgive me, but, but I just I can't face him. I can't go face those people at the church. I can't go face my family right now. I'm, just, I'm too embarrassed. I've got too much shame. Maybe we've been there. Maybe we have, have gone through this, and folks, I get it. We've all done things that we, we wished we hadn't done. But Jesus doesn't work that way. Jesus doesn't want you to wallow in your shame. He doesn't want you to hold on to that. He wants you to let go of that and in humility come back to him. And I know that because I read what Paul writes in Romans chapter 8 when he says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because the, the, uh, through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit gives life, or who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Jesus came uh, to forgive you of your sins, yes, but he came to set you free from those sins, to break those chains that hold you down and hold you back. Jesus came to let you go. So maybe you've been in this boat here. Maybe you've been in a boat where you look at the list of things you've done wrong in your life, and you, you, you say to yourself, man, I really wish I hadn't have done that. Man, I really wish I could undo that. I wish I could go change that. If you, you think that, you're not alone. But if that's you, and that attitude causes you to beat yourself up about it, maybe ask yourself this question instead. When you look back at what you've done wrong, ask yourself, what did I learn from this? How did I grow from this? How has God refined me through this? Let go of that shame and grab on to God. You see, here's what what we need to understand. Pride blinds us 
to where we need to go because pride makes me the Lord of my life. I dictate where I go next. I dictate what I do next. But I need the humble reminder that God not only knows what's best for me, God wants what's best for me. And that guardrails up in my life lead me to whatever is best for me. And I need that reminder. I need that in my life. I need you to hear this, especially if you're not a Christian yet. Maybe you're here in the room, maybe you're watching online. If you're thinking about coming to Jesus, I want you to understand this and hear my heart in this. God loves you just the way that you are. But he loves you too much to leave you that way. You may say, well, that doesn't make sense. If God loves me just how I am, he doesn't need to change me. No, no here's what I mean by this. I love my kids just as, the, as they are right now. My kids are eight, almost six, and two and a half. I don't want them to stay like they are the rest of their lives, though. I want them to grow and mature. I want them to become adults who make a difference in the lives of other people, who follow Jesus, who, who make an impact in the world. I love my kids, and I wouldn't change anything about them. But I do want them to grow and mature. I want them to learn there's things they should and shouldn't do in life. And as we come to Jesus, that's what this is about. Those boundaries exist to protect us. So when I say that God loves you too much to leave you that way, I think about the words of Peter. Acts chapter 2, that the church starts, the Holy Spirit shows up, and somebody asks Peter, what do I have to do to get saved? And he tells him uh, two simple words, repent, be baptized. That's three words, actually. Well, four if you count the and. <laughs> repent, be baptized. Thank you, Brenda and Gretchen. Details. <laughs> he tells him four simple words. <laughs> Repent, that's to turn away. You accept Jesus, you turn away from your sin, and you stop walking the way you had done before. And you be baptized, you submit, you surrender your life to, 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 to Christ, you give up control of your life, and you give it to Jesus. You're, you're no longer who you were. You're, you're, you're a new creation. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians 5, anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, the new is here. The fact that God doesn't want you to stay just the way you are, that he wants to refine you, that he wants to, 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 to make you holy, that's not a sign of God being mean, that's not a sign of God uh, being cruel, that's a sign of his love for you. I used to tell my soccer players when I coached, I said, if I'm getting on you, it's because I care, because I want you to get better, because I see the potential in you. Now, you can tell the minute that I don't care anymore, because I'll just keep my mouth shut and let you be however you are. I'm thankful I have a God who doesn't keep his mouth shut with me, who refines me, who pushes me to grow every day. Because here's the thing, folks, we need to understand this. Until you take your last breath on this earth, God is working on you. None of us are where God wants us to be yet. It's a journey. It's a continual journey of becoming more like Christ. It's a continual walk, just like with my kids. I'm 38. I'll still call my parents and ask for advice. Because there's things I don't know that they do know. And, and, and many of you can relate to that. They're not fully finished with me just because I moved out of their house and across the country. <laughs> they still have work to do on me. Here's why that's good news. 
when we let pride creep into our lives, we determine what's important to us and how important we are to others. But here's the thing, folks. When we do that, we can start assigning different values to different people or to ourselves. Or maybe we assign value to ourselves based on how other people look at us and accept us. Folks, your value is not determined by your condition in life. It's not determined by your place in life. Uh, A few weeks ago, I used an example in communion. I said if I had a crisp $100 bill and asked who wants this, I'm assuming everybody in the building is going to raise their hand. It's 100 bucks, right? Get a lot of Dutch bros with that $100 bill. But what if I took that brand new crisp $100 bill and I wadded it up in my hand and I dropped it on the ground and I kicked some dirt on it and put a rip or tear in it and I shoved it down in my pocket and I I passed it around to a few people and then I got it back and you know what it's going to look like now. Now who wants this $100 bill? I'm assuming you all still raise your hands, right? Why? Because it's not suddenly worth $80. It's not suddenly worth anything less because I don't determine the value of that bill. You don't determine the value of that bill. There is an outside entity that does. And the same is true with our lives. Somebody may look clean and crisp and pristine and somebody else may look like they've been wadded up in a pocket for a while. God determines your value. Not me, not you, God. And when you can understand that only God determines your value, folks, to me, it suddenly becomes a little harder to get too big for your britches. It suddenly becomes a little bit more attainable to hold on to humility. That's my challenge for you today. If you struggle with ego, a lot of us do, guys especially, we do. We like to show how much we know and how good we can do things, and everything turns into a competition. If you struggle with ego, and it's affecting your ability to follow Jesus and your ability to see others as valued creations that that Christ died for, folks, I encourage you, as often as you can this week, to remind yourselves what Jesus did on the cross for you. Everybody that you see is somebody God created, God loved, and God died for. Father, we're so thankful for a Savior who values us so much that he went to the cross for us, that he took an unimaginable beating for us. God, I know for myself, Lord, that this is such a dangerous temptation to overvalue my sense of importance in the world, to overvalue my sense of importance in the church or in the lives of others. And God, I know I'm not alone when I, when I say that and I pray that. God, I ask that you would give us all that daily reminder of our place in all this, that you died for us because you value us so much. God, I pray today if anybody is is struggling with this, Lord, that you would allow them to release this. God, that our our ego and our pride would take a backseat to our honesty and our humility with ourselves. You would allow us, Lord, to see where we need to improve ourselves so that we can walk in holiness with you. God, I'm so thankful today 
for Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.